Bibles and let's go to 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel 30. And I want to teach briefly on some scriptures for fighting depression. It's a strange title, but I want to show you some things out of the word of God. First Samuel 30, look at verse six, how to fight depression. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke or spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. Now, I want to remind you that in reading the book of Genesis, you can see that when God made man, he said that all of his creation was good. And when God started with Adam and Eve, there was no fear, there was no murder, there was no depression, there wasn't any kind of sadness or sorrow at all. And so when we think of that, I want you to understand that your task and your assignment in life is not to be depressed. Think of how many people today are medicated for something like that. How many people have no joy, have no happiness. They are excessively sorrowful and have learned to adapt to that. In looking at 1 Samuel 30, it's interesting <clears throat> that David and his men are coming back from a raid and they look up and they can see a few miles ahead and see smoke ascending from the village where they live. Some marauders had come into the village and set it on fire and took their personal belongings and took their sons and their daughters captive. And of course, when Dave and his men got there, they looked around and saw the remnants of what used to be where they lived. Ashes, piles of ashes in different places. Naturally, the people with David were unhappy. Their unhappiness turned to anger. They started letting David know, had we not been following you raiding that other village, we could have been here to defend our own families. And now my son is gone. My wife is gone. My daughters are gone. And their anger against him became so bad that you can see in verse 6, the people spoke of stoning him. They spoke audibly. They wanted David to know, we're so unhappy with you, we want you dead. But you know, David could have listened to everything that they said because he knew he was guilty. And he could have been absolutely given over to what they were saying. And the scripture does say he was greatly distressed. But at some point or another, you've got to do like David and get your mind and your eyes off of what you're seeing and hearing. Begin to think about God. You'll find that wherever there's a whole lot of distress, you'll find depression. Where you find a lot of stress, you'll find depression. Where people are so overburdened and their life is overly taxed, if they're not careful, they'll end up in a state of depression. And it moves slowly. Doesn't always come quickly. It comes in on the person like a cloud that's coming in on the sky. And before you know it, all your sunny days suddenly become overcast. 
Then you don't smile anymore. You're not happy anymore. You stay in the house, keep the curtains drawn. You want to just be away from people. You're not interested in answering the door. You don't want to read your Bible. All of this because now you're distressed and you're depressed. Now, the psychologists and people will give you any kind of label that you want if you're looking for a label. But I just want you to understand that David shows us the way out in verse six. He says, David encouraged himself. He didn't wait for his men to do it. He didn't look at the circumstances. He turned his eyes off the circumstances, began to think about God. And this is what you and I have to do whenever we're going to think about dealing with depression and distress and every kind of despondency you can think of. Get your eyes off of the piles of ashes. Get your mind off of what you're seeing and what you're hearing and then encourage yourself. Create a new atmosphere to foster a new attitude that will give you a new outlook. If you don't change what you're thinking, you can't change your behavior. If you don't change your behavior, you're never going to be encouraged in the Lord. So David said he's going to encourage himself, and he did it in the Lord. He didn't do it in the flesh. He did it in the Lord. How do I do that? Well, start praising God. Yeah, start praising God. You may not feel like praising God, but start glorifying God and worshiping him. I don't care how bad the the circumstances look. Come out of that dark house, go out in the sunlight in your backyard or front yard and start praising God. And don't worry about who's looking at you. Praise God. And then at the same time, pray. Pour your heart out before God like a drink offering to get all of that stuff out of you. No sense of you putting a cork in it and saying, I don't want to talk about it and just letting it be bottled up inside of you. Weep and cry in the presence of the Lord because the Lord is the one that comforts the brokenhearted. Prayer, praise, confess the word. Get the word on your lips and then remind yourself that despite everything that has taken place, God has caused you to triumph in all things. And if God is for you, who can be against you? If you don't put the word of God on your lips, then you're allowing the devil to have your mouth. So you fight depression by standing against it. It's important. This is what David did. If you want to encourage yourself, Don't wait for other people to encourage you. Now, we all like handshakes and hugs and smiles. And we like other people to put us in a good mood. But folks, sometimes you've got to change it on your own. And and don't think we haven't wrestled with this or I haven't wrestled with this. There have been times in, in, in our past where I would sit around and think about the bills we had, the people we need to get money to as far as missions and all of this stuff. And in our early years, I'd wonder how in the world are we even surviving in the heartland? And God, how are you going to help us and take care of us? And once I got to meditating on that, it just seemed like everything turned bad. Because now I'm focusing on the piles of ashes. I'm focusing on the ascended smoke. And I'm focusing on everything that to me looks like has been taken captive. But the moment I come back to the word of God and begin to meditate on the fact that our God shall supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory, not according to my gifts, not according to my talents, not even according to my faith in some instances, but according to his riches and glory. 
Then suddenly everything changes and the clouds roll back because now I'm encouraging myself. That's what you have to do. Don't wait for everybody else. Now let's go to Acts chapter 10 and I want to show you a couple of things. I want to give you three scriptures that I think can help you deal with this. Acts chapter 10, notice verse 38, speaking of our Savior, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing several that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Does it say that in verse 38, that he healed several? Or it says that he healed all, all that were oppressed. According to verse 38 here in Acts chapter 10, you need to understand that oppression is an adversarial emotion or, or, or entity that comes against you. I don't care what you call it, depression, oppression, suppression, repression, any kind of pressure in your life that adversely affects your emotional state. You've got to take that as though it's an enemy. Because the scripture says, he that hath a merry heart has a continual feast. And the Bible says a merry heart does good like a medicine. And you need to understand that the joy of the Lord is your weakness, right? Is that what it says? The joy of the Lord is your strength. So anything coming into your life that is designed by the adversary to rob you of your joy is designed to rob you of your strength. And Jesus here is anointed by God to alleviate that thing. So God's plan for you and for me is not for us to be depressed. Now, there are people who go around and say things like this. Well, I went to see my doctor and my doctor said because of my genetics that all of this is the way this is. And this is what he's prescribed for me. And this is what I'm supposed to take. Well, here is what I want you to understand. Your feelings, your emotions are directly connected or linked to what you're thinking about. If you sit around and worry, because worry is still a form of meditation. If you sit around and worry about everything going wrong in your life, you're meditating on what's going wrong in your life. And if you constantly meditate on everything going wrong, I can promise you, you'll put yourself in a continual state of depression. And there are a whole lot of sad Christians today with no victory, but they walk around with T-shirts that say defeat on the front, defeat on the back. And in every direction they turn, all you see is defeat in their countenance, defeat in their posture, defeat in their speech, all because they meditate on those piles of ashes and what Ziklag looks like. But Jesus came along in order to redeem us so that you and I could be free of this kind of oppression. And the Bible says he was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power. So that tells me there is a power to set the captive free. You don't have to be depressed. You fight against it. You resist it. God doesn't want you to learn how to cope with it. He wants you to learn how to overcome it. So there's a power that can help. I think I've told you once in a, in a meeting on the East Coast, we had a, a grandmother that brought her daughter to the meeting and told me she had not seen her granddaughter smile in years. But the only reason she was raising her was because the parents were in jail because of a substance abuse problem. And so this little girl fell into her care and 
she brought her to me. So I took her to the other side of the auditorium. Everybody was down on this end that people were being prayed for and all of that. I wanted to get over here where I could talk to her privately and nobody would hear what I'm saying to her. So I got close to her and she's a beautiful little girl with 11, 12 years of age, but she still just looked mean. And I asked her, I said, well, do you mind if I pray for you? And she said, no, I don't mind at all. That's why my grandmother brought me to this meeting. So, you know, I didn't pray some, some little soft prayer, just laid my hands on either side of her head. And I said, you, you spirit of depression or whatever I said, I said, go from her. And then I led her to Christ. Well, the, the grandmother and other people saw me over there with her. And since her grandmother belonged to that church, they certainly knew who the girl was and knew about her circumstances. But they looked over there and within a few moments, she had her hands lifted up, tears rolling down her face. She had the biggest smile because God had lifted that spirit of oppression from off of her. Why would any young person need to be unhappy all the time? And why would any grandparent have to live with a kid that they never see happy? It just seems to me it's normal and natural for young people to laugh and smile. But she was so dominated by this. According to Acts chapter 10, verse 38, there's a power of God that is useful as well as necessary to alleviate a person who's passing through this. Alleviate this burden to lift it off of them. Turn to Romans chapter 8 now. Next book after the book of Acts. Romans 8. And notice what it says, beginning with verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than what's the next word? Conquerors through him that loved us. Now look at verse 35 again. Do you realize that every item mentioned there can cause depression? Tribulation. Imagine having a bad day. Imagine having a bad week. Imagine having a bad month. So here you lose a loved one. Then before you know it, the car breaks down. Now you've got a problem with your house. You're having to deal with thousands of dollars, and it just seems like you're thrust in the midst of tribulation. How many times have you seen people pass through that and then end up sad and sorrowful? I remember one time we had a person in one of the other churches whose uh, mother, father, and grandmother were all in the hospital at the same time. And one of them died. And I just remember the person talking to me and just saying, Pastor, how much can a person take when you're just going from one hospital room to the next or from one hospital to the next hospital? Tribulation. Well, notice here when it says in verse 35, it, it mentions distress. We've told you what distress is. That's when there's more of the devil there than there is God. Very, very little peace that's there. Anything that is on your shoulders that encumbers you. And if you're, if you're mentally not ready to deal with it, you'll be distressed in your thoughts. Disturbed is another good word to describe this. Persecution. 
little children around the world who love God, sometimes they have to hide their faith. It is against the law in China to teach minors religion. That means until they're the age of 18, they're not supposed to hear about religion. The Chinese government will line up children in school and they'll ask the elementary school students, does your mother and father talk to you about God or faith? If the child confesses and says that they do, according to the law, the parents lose parental rights over the child. And the government, the communists take the child. Isn't that persecution? I think so. Think of the people around the world that because of their faith and their love for Jesus Christ end up losing their jobs. Sometimes their homes are burned down. Persecution. That's enough to bring distress or depression to anybody. How about famine? Shortages of food. You see the little kids sometimes with the distended bellies. When I was a baby and looked at that, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm Kids, they've had so much to food, look how so much so much to eat, look how big they are. Until my parents had to explain to me their bellies aren't swollen because they've eaten too much, they're swollen because there's nothing in there. And then you see the little kids, they don't even have the strength or the desire to fan the flies away. They just got flies jumping all over their eyelids and all of that, and there's pain, and mothers who don't have any food, they don't have enough nourishment in their body to produce milk for a nursing baby. Yeah, famine, no food, don't have anything to put on the table. And yet people are praying, saying, Father, give me this day my daily bread and going to sleep without the daily bread. That'll produce depression when a mom or dad can't put food on their table and can't take care of their family. The next, next one tells us about nakedness. Imagine that someone that doesn't even have clothing. I preached in services where people didn't have any clothes on, maybe a loincloth, where the ladies in there don't have any tops or clothes on. Imagine the number of people across Africa and other places that don't even own a pair of shoes or sandals, and yet they're walking long distances to get to where they're going. I've seen them come into church sometimes with a with an old tattered shirt or a pair of shorts that they found in a dump place somewhere, and they just put anything on just so they'll be able to go out to church. Nakedness. Think that'll produce depression? You look at other people and see how well-dressed they are, that they have more clothes in their closet than you've ever had in your life, and here you are having to battle this as a mother, as a father, as a son, who's praying, saying, God bless our family. We see other people that have it. We read in the Bible of people that have it, but we don't have it. Depression. And then the last thing there, or the last two things there, peril. That's a life in danger. Living a life constantly wondering if you're going to be arrested because of your faith. Because dad's in jail right now. Think of the number of Christian preachers in Muslim countries who have spent the bulk of their children's lives in jail. Think of the Chinese pastors of the underground churches who go to jail for six months, then get out. Spend a little time with their family, then continue witnessing and leading an underground church or a home fellowship, then disappear for five years in a, in a work camp. 
and the wife stays faithful, raises the kids. The church chips in, puts together some money to try to help them keep body and soul together. Then the father gets out and comes out after five or six years of being incarcerated. And once he's out, what does he do? He goes back to witnessing. And within three or four months, he's back in jail again, this time for 15 years. There are pastors who have spent more time in peril and in jail than standing behind a pulpit freely preaching the gospel. And the scripture here makes it very plain when it talks about the sword, it's talking about death. The number of maimed people, the number of people who have lost loved ones because of the gospel is great. But verse 38 says, I am persuaded. That is to say, my mind is made up and I am more than a conqueror. None of these things are going to separate me from God. I refuse to be depressed. Not going to be pushed down, not going to be pushed back. You're not going to rob me of this wonderful enthusiasm that I have for the king. Because in all of those things, we're more than conquerors. You see, preachers use the illustration all the time. Of the two heavyweight boxers getting to the ring, slug it out for 12 rounds. And I mean, it's brutal. Big guys, swollen lips, closed eyes, bloody noses. Get to the end of the fight. The two people are barely able to stand up in the ring. Got the referee in the middle of them. They go to the scorecards. Two out of three scorecards announce the winner. Then they give the name. The referee grabs the name, the hand or the arm, lifts it up. The man can barely get his arm up. He's so tired, been slugging it out. But he gets the belt or he gets the win. A couple of days later, when all of the receipts from the ticket sales have been counted, pay-per-view sales have been counted, that man who's the victor ends up receiving some kind of a paycheck. And I mean, that money is looking good. 1.5 million, 3 million, 5 million, whatever it is, 500,000. He has just won a victory. He's now received his pay and he stumbles on into that house where his wife is at. And he takes that little bitty check and he puts it in mama's hand. He's the one that went to battle, slugged it out in the ring. He's the one that's the conqueror. But putting that check in mama's hand, mama becomes more than a conqueror. She didn't fight anybody. She didn't get one bruise on her. But then you think about Jesus Christ. He came into this world bore our sins, climbed up on that cross, and he had been bludgeoned, he had been bloodied, he had endured, but the Bible says he spoiled the powers and principalities, walked through all of that so that you and I could be victorious and more than conquerors. And we don't even have to go through everything he went through. You're not bearing anybody's sin, neither am I. And this is the mentality we have to have. We've got to change how we're thinking about our circumstances to realize we're more than a conqueror. Much more. See, much more. Let me give you another one here. Let's go to 1 Peter towards the end. 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, in changing your mind, remember, Paul has told us that we have to think on things that are pure, things that are just, things that are lovely, things that are of a good report. 
What you think on is very often going to determine your emotional state. First Peter five, then notice what verse seven says, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Now, why should we do that? Let's remember that in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, Jesus speaks of the various types of soil. And one of them, he says, the seed goes in, it starts to grow, but it is choked because of the cares of this world. And you can have so many cares in your life on your shoulders and on your backs that when you come out here, those cares choke the word of God and keep it from growing and developing in your life. You say, well, pastor, how can that happen? Well, if you've got so much going on in your life, when you come to church, you can't even hear what I'm saying. You can't even hear what the preacher is saying because your cares are oppressing you. They are talking to you. They are speaking to you all throughout the message. And if you're troubled now about something in your personal life or something that you're passing through, you may have already missed 15 minutes of the message because you're thinking about and meditating on what you're hearing your circumstances say. Now, in the middle of a storm, if you live in the country or if you have some kind of a building that's, we'll say, more than 50 feet from your home, a garage, a shed, something like that. If there's a terrible windstorm and there's snow involved, then, of course, wind makes noise. We talk about the howling winds, you see. Imagine if you're in the house and you say to one of your kids, I need you to go out to the garage or out to the shed and bring back this piece of equipment or whatever because of the storm. So then they go and they look out there and I'm telling there's snow coming and blowing in every direction and it looks like it's a whiteout. But you can hear the sound of the wind. They step out, take 50 steps towards the shed and disappear. You can't even see them anymore. And so you're waiting. And you're waiting and you're waiting and they haven't returned. And so you want to provide them with a voice that they can use as a locator to try to make their way back in the storm. Because obviously they can't see if snow is coming and and the wind is blowing. And so you're out there yelling their name and you're speaking as loud as you can. But do you realize they won't be able to hear you in some circumstances because the winds are blowing? And this is exactly what happens with Christians when they're passing through different trials and they're burdened by all kinds of cares. They'll come to the house of God. The word of God will be taught to them and they won't hear a thing. They can't hear. They're not listening. And even when they're trying to listen, they're distraught by all of this other stuff. They got their eyes on the storm. They've got their eyes on this. They got their eyes on that. But Peter says there is something within your power that you can do and you can take all your care and cast it upon him. Give it to him. Don't hold on to it. He said, how do I give it to him? Say, Father, by faith, I'm putting this in your hands. I'm laying this at your feet. Your hands are bigger and stronger than my shoulders and my back. And I'm tired of bearing this. I'm tired of being pressed down and depressed. I'm tired of being burdened and unhappy because I'm facing this challenge on this side, this challenge on this side, this challenge on this side. I want to have something, Lord, where you can alleviate my burden." And by faith, you say, God, once I turn and walk away, I'm believing this is all in your hands. That's all you can do. 
Do it by faith. So look at verse number eight. It says, be sober and be vigilant. This means you have to be alert. What if at two o'clock in the morning you woke up and you heard a noise just outside a window? Most of you would probably go for a weapon or some kind of means of protection. And then let's say you went to the window, opened up the curtains and looked and you just saw a shadowy figure and you couldn't make it out because you saw maybe like a hood on their head, big, thick coat. And so you're walking around to see what's happened. Then you hear a louder noise. And before you know it, that shadowy figure is in the house. And so what are you going to do? Just say, take whatever you want? No, most people are going to resist that intruder, even if it means they've got to get physical and wrestle with them, or if they're going to try to stick something or try to hit them with something, they're going to do whatever they can. And then when they, when you get close to them and you finally get that, that hood pulled back and then you look and it's Pastor Daryl <laughs> on the ground. Well, well, here's the thing. It doesn't matter who the intruder is. If the intruder isn't supposed to be there, you treat them like an invader. And you have to remember that depression is not a friend. It is not your comrade. You are to resist it like it is an enemy that is invading your life. You don't sit there and feed that thing crackers and Doritos and make it comfortable. You do everything you can to resist it and fight it. Be sober and vigilant. Keep your eyes open. Good, good friend of mine one time had a, when her, when her, when one of her babies was small and she's a tall but petite lady. And, and they used to tell me the story of how, you know, she did not like bees of any kind, bumblebees. She didn't like any kind of bees that stung. She didn't like wasps, anything like that, yellow jackets. Well, one of them got in the house. And so she was running all over the house because that bee was chasing her. She was screaming and she was yelling and, and her baby was in another room sleep. But then that bee that was chasing her all around, and she was screaming and yelling, trying to get, get cover. That bee messed around and went in that room where her baby was. And that mother that had been screaming, all of a sudden turned into a warrior and she went in there and had rolled up a magazine and went in there where that bee was at with her baby and she was swinging. And I mean, she destroyed that thing and she came walking out of saying, going in there messing with my baby. You've got to be vigilant. You cannot allow the adversary to come against you and then you sit passively there. So it says, because your adversary, the devil, that tells you right now, the devil isn't your friend and anything that he brings with him are not friendlies. And I don't care what anybody has told you. Depression is not something you should just learn to live with because it's come down through six generations. You make the determination that you're going to resist the adversary. Fight it. So he says he's a roaring lion. So lions make a lot of noise. Yeah, they do. But they prowl and they know how to stalk their prey quietly. And it says they're seeking whom they may devour. So they're only looking for prey they can overcome. A lion's not going to take on something unless it believes it can win. And most of the battles are going to be on land. 
When's the last time you seen a lion try to take on a hippopotamus in the water? You've never seen it happen. That lion likes to fight in an environment where it can achieve victory. And this is what the devil likes to do. He wants to push you off of Calvary's hill where you have faith and victory and move you away from the resurrected life of the Lord Jesus Christ where you're justified from your sins. And he wants to attack you through condemnation, shame and guilt. Well, don't you know how bad you were before you became a Christian? You don't really think you're forgiven of your sins, do you? I mean, after all, you're just a little self-righteous thing. You And you're as bad as everybody else down the block. Why do you think you're better? And you get to meditating on that, and before you know it, one of the best days of your life become one of the saddest days of your life because you began to meditate on the roar of that lion. There's no sense at all for you to do that. Verse 9 tells you to resist him steadfast, and it tells you how to do it. In your faith. Your faith is the means of resistance. And the scripture is very clear here. You are to maintain a posture of resistance. And live your life in a state of rebellion against the devil. Be submitted to God. But live every day in a state of rebellion against the devil. Do not let the devil cause you to sit by complacently and get used to defeat. Now, I'll tell you this story just as a as a way of showing you that some people don't like defeat, but not as a way of giving an example for young people for what they should do. But my my brothers and my dad, they just wouldn't tolerate us being bullied. They could they just couldn't handle that. And they weren't going to handle that. They weren't going to have it. And so I got into it one time with a little kid, and this little kid got the best of me in front of all of my friends. And I mean, he just he just put it on, put it on me and shamed me, made me feel bad and everything like that. And so I, I, I go back home, and of course, my oldest brother, he says, what in the world happened to you? Well, I told him what happened. He said, really? He said, just like that. You, you, just, you just give up, and it's, that's the end of it. He said, oh, no, let's, let's, let's head back around the corner. So we walk back around the corner, and, and the, the little boy I just got into it with, he's out there cutting the grass. We get there to the house. My oldest brother, Anthony, he says, okay, there he is. Get to it. And so there I went right up there on the grass and went right to it and pounded the guy into the ground, and that was the end of that, just as a little kid. And then, and then of course, when, when that was all over, then my brothers and them said, well, that's exactly how it's supposed to be. You don't let people push you around. Well, they learned that from my dad. We weren't Christian. My dad had a rule, and that rule was you fight dirty. That was his rule. So he said if you're on the inside and somebody invites you outside, you hit them while you're on the inside. He said once the fight gets started, he said then you kick them, you bite them, you pinch them, you gnaw them, you do whatever you have to do. You give him so much grief that when everything is over with, he'll want to walk down the other sidewalk rather than walk down the sidewalk you on because he don't want to tussle with you again. Now, I say that not because I want you to imitate that, but I say that because you cannot be complacent with the devil. And when depression comes into your house and you see it warring against your spouse or warring against your child, you can't just sit around and say, let's just medicate the devil. 
You've got to fight him and resist him and turn around and bring every thought captive so that God can reign in a person's life. And if you sit there and be complacent, the devil, he'll eat it up. He'll say, oh, I'm loving this house. This is a lovely life that you have right here. Everybody is sad. Everybody is unhappy. But that's not the plan of God for you. God never designed for you to be depressed. When he made man, he said all of this is good. Top of the head to the sole of the feet. Spirit, soul, and body, it's good. He did not design for you and for me to live with defeats. And I think every moment we should meditate on God's word. Be around people that make you laugh. Be around people that make you smile. Because laughter truly is a medicine. Be around people that are excited and happy. I mean, if, you, if you're looking for things to do, That'll make you laugh. Come to my house in Red Cloud or come here to the apartment and and, and let me play some old voice recordings that were left on there by Tina Reed. You, You will laugh the whole time you're there. Tina will call and leave a message and partway through the message, start laughing and giggling at her own message. You can't help but smile. I said, oh, my goodness. Lord, of all the pastors on planet Earth, you bless me with her. See? It does good like a merry heart, folks. So I'm telling you, it truly is a joy to know him in a powerful way. And and, and this is every bit as supernatural as somebody coming out of a wheelchair. You just learning how to encourage yourself. And, And whatever your background, the circumstances of your birth, the circumstances of how you were reared, the circumstances of your present life, your old age, whatever it might be. You can enjoy them in a better way if you let the word of God dwell richly in your heart with all wisdom. Yeah, I've never really struggled with my past and how I was raised. I've got good memories. I've got better memories. I've got some bad memories because we we weren't Christian, but I'm not one of these people that have to get up in front of every man's group and confess about how terrible my life was and, and everything's bad. I can tell people I'm an overcomer. I came through all of that, and that is exactly how you should be. Not allow your life to become a crutch on which you have to lean to look for sympathy. You're not a victim. You're a victor. So walk with God and be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Amen. Come on, let's stand tonight. Whatever you're battling, whatever you're dealing with, depression is not part of the spiritual equipment that God has given to you and to me. You are a warrior. And just like soldiers go out to battle and go out to the field, they've got to pack their gear. But I can promise you in all the gear that we have, depression is not part of that gear. It was not and has not been assigned to what we're doing as good soldiers for the king. So if you feel like you've got a lot of cares in your life right now, a lot of things on your shoulders, on your plate, and you're saying, God, how am I going to deal with that? As I pray, I want you just to believe by faith that you're going to cast all of that at Jesus' feet or put that in his hands and believe that when we're done praying and say amen, that you're going to turn and walk away and have complete trust that God will do that. You say, Pastor, how can I have trust and just leave that in his hands like that? 
Well, you know, if you sign a contract or make an agreement with somebody to do landscape in your yard and you put money up front, some earnest money, and give it to them, then, of course, you expect them to be there to do your yard. You don't call them every third day or every month to see where they are. Your yard should be taken care of appropriately. And since you had faith to believe with the exchange of money, they would do what they're supposed to do. You should believe that with this divine exchange of your cares to God, that God's going to provide you the peace that you need to believe. that we can go on. Yeah. You don't have to be in your old age and wonder how you're going to take care of yourself. God can help you. He can give you peace about that. and He can touch a whole lot of hearts and bless you a lot of different ways. You don't have to spend your time in your middle middle years trying to figure out, Lord, how are you going to work this out? How, where's the money going to come from from this? The Lord will supply according to his riches and glory. According to his riches and glory. And just like little kids trust their parents, we should be able to trust our God. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we bring every care and we place it in your hands right now. All of our financial stresses. We place it in your hands right now. Emotional bondages and even the physical infirmities that we're battling right now, Lord, we lay them all at your feet, knowing that you are more than able to dispense with it all. And Father, we take the time to know that as we do this, that when we say amen, that you have handled these matters properly. Father, you're a rescuer. You're a redeemer. We have a covenant with you. We have no need to be ashamed or to feel guilty because we are forgiven. And God, we're going to feel clean and we're going to live clean. And we're going to thank you for the innocence that you provided through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, we honor you tonight and thank you. It's in Jesus name we pray and everyone said, Amen, 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 amen.